actually, I actually thought what I would talk about today, uh, so if this were going to have a, uh, if this were going to have a, a name, like a Dharma talk goes to Dharma seed and gets a name, I was going to call it being frightened, but um, because that's really what I talked about in most of the cities that I was in. Um, I was in Washington uh, two weeks ago where people were really frightened. Um, but while we were sitting this morning, I thought, you know, the name of this talk is really not being frightened. It's about, it's really the name is take care. You know, that, that's the response to being frightened. The antidote to being frightened is taking care. While we're taking care of someone, we stop being frightened for that moment. Um, it was an interesting experience to be uh, it was peculiar the experience of being in Washington while people were frightened maybe I could start with that because you have uh, the mind is so um, interesting to watch I was in I had a peculiar schedule for a few days where I was one day one day each in different cities so I was in New York, and then I was in Philadelphia, and then I was in New York and Philadelphia, and then I was in Washington and Philadelphia. So kind of because of when there were um, there were things that I had to teach in Philadelphia on three different occasions, so it seemed like I was coming and going from Philadelphia. But uh, I had the uh, experience of going from Philadelphia to Washington at a time before these two men who had been caught for the shootings were caught on a day right after someone else had been shot. And um, when you got to, my, my, the, the publicist who was in charge of where I went from day to day called me about two days before and she said, um, are you all right to go to Washington? And it took me for a moment to figure out why I wouldn't be all right to go to Washington. You know, I, you know, I was... And then I realized it was because of uh, the concern about what was going on there. And so for a moment, you know, I hadn't been worried. I mean, I'd been concerned about what was going on in Washington, but I hadn't thought that I wouldn't go. Um, and I thought, whoa, maybe I should worry about that. And then I said, no, no, I'll go to Washington. I actually thought that, uh, at that you know, by the, when I started to think about it, I thought, whoa, you know, maybe I had the option of not going. But then I thought, you know, I really, that wouldn't be a good thing to do. I actually was going to teach the Washington um, uh, meditation group. It's a big group. And uh, I couldn't have thought of not going because of what was happening there. I think I had to go because of what was happening there in a certain way. And it was interesting because uh, when I got to Washington, I talked, I went on the train and I, talked to the taxi driver on the way to the hotel, and I said, uh, everybody frightened here? He said, oh, yeah. Um, I noticed myself, you know, I got out of the taxi, you look around at the rooftops, you know. And uh, there are five million people in the greater Washington area. So the odds of being hit by lightning are more, or being hit by a car, or more, or I think even the odds of winning the lottery are, are more than that. But still, there's something about contagion, about fear, that makes the, the atmosphere somewhat charged. You just know about it. You, know, you think about, do I want to walk down to a shopping center? Or, It was an interesting experience when I taught there that night. Was um, uh, it's a quite a large group, really a large group, and uh, they meet in a church, and um, the church was all full, and I sat up here like this, and the whole wall behind me was glass, and uh, it was in, uh, it's either in Silver Springs or in Chevy Chase or in one of those communities in Washington, near where a lot of those shootings happened. 
and the church is all lit, and there's a forest right out behind this wall. And in truth, you know, the mind makes all kinds of stories. And I sat down and I thought, whoa, you know, here I am. But I thought, you know, what I really want to talk to these folks about is being frightened, because I was too. But I did it by talking about metta practice and talking about metta as the antidote for fear, that fear is a normal thing in response to uh, some sense of jeopardy. It's what the body does. You know, that sometimes it's, a, it's, a, it's actually sometimes, I think, a, a helpful response, you know, if we were suddenly, um, oh, I can remember once I just said the, if it's the, the, the chances are less than being struck by lightning. The fastest I ever pedaled, uh, my husband and I did a lot of bicycling in Europe over a period of many years. And uh, you try not to be out in uh, lightning storms, uh, especially bicycling over the top of open hills in lightning storms. And I can remember one time bicycling between two cities and we had you know, several miles to go. And we happened to be out in this open terrain on the top of open hills, and suddenly, out of nowhere, came rolling thunder clouds and lightning in the distance. And uh, here we are on open hills and pedaling. And from somewhere, the adrenaline comes out, and never have I biked so fast in my life. <laughs> but somehow you get fueled by that adrenaline, and it was like a, a really like a motorcycle. <laughs> I remember getting to where I was going and just panting. And you know, maybe it was out of proportion to the amount of um, uh, jeopardy actually there, but I, I think it's good for the it's good for us as human beings to be able to run very fast. You always you read stories about people who have horrible events, like uh, a car rolls uh, onto a child or something, and some small person goes out and picks up the car and lifts it up because you get that kind of that strength. So, I, you know, I think it's good that we have that alarm system and it makes the adrenaline. And I think also that we have the system that says, okay, calm down. This is what it is. You're actually probably not in jeopardy. Not, you're frightened because you've heard a story, but we're always in jeopardy. Life is very fragile. You don't know. This might be a moment where you might be completely safe from any people out to do any bad deeds, and your car might get in a wreck on the way. You don't know. Life is fragile. So not to be frightened by a story. You can be frightened by an event and pick up the car or bicycle fast, can't be frightened by a story. I can say the antidote, which is, okay, I am frightened, but here I am, and it'll be what it'll be, and I'm just going to make a wise move. The wise move is, that in, is to just keep on having your life, keep your heart in a good place. And it was very, very interesting to me because you know, I, I really actually led a metta, and I did the practice, and all of my fear went away. And I, you know, I, I was really happy about that. Say to yourself, what's actually true? Actually true is here I am. Actually true is that life is fragile. Actually true is I've fr been frightened by a story. And actually true is that maybe it's fragile, but we can do it moment to moment. It's a whole story of life. Sometimes it seems more heightened, but um, I think it's because the story is heightened, not because the jeopardy is actually heightened. In a peculiar way, the next day when I went back to Philadelphia, I got off the train and I thought, oh, phew, I'm in Philadelphia. Now, Everything can happen to you in Philadelphia that happens to you in Washington. You know, that you don't know. You know, but the mind makes a story that says, oh, now I'm in jeopardy and now I'm safe. 
And there's a way, I think, in these days where it can call for such discernment, on my part at least, to say, this is an actual jeopardy, and this is not. I told, I don't know how many people that Joe told me sometime in the last year that uh, airplane flying is second in safety in modes of transportation only to, do you know what is the safest mode of transportation? Elevators. <laughs> you thought about that? So I, I, and I know some people who are afraid of elevators, but, but I've told any number of people who have been frightened on planes. My friend Joe told me, <laughs> second only to elevators. And when people hear a story, they say, oh, okay, you just fixed it for them in a certain way. And I've been so aware of how we get, I get frightened by stories and the need for me to keep a certain amount of discerning wisdom, I guess. And um, figure out what, what, what really is the, the appropriate thing to do. The other day, maybe I was going to, I'll start here now, because I was going to end with it, but then I can tell you how I taught this. I was being interviewed on a radio program, and we talked all about a whole lot of things. And at the very end, when there was a half a minute left, the interviewer said, um, we have about 30 seconds left now. I wonder if you'd like to tell our listeners, what's the prayer that you say the most? Huh. That wasn't what we had been talking about, you know. Uh, so I, but I said, uh, what I say the most is I pray that my heart stays open. She said, thank you very much. Now we have 15 seconds left. I'd like in this 15 seconds for you to tell the listeners the one single piece of spiritual instruction that you think is most important for them to have. <laughs> It was actually easy. Do you know what I said? Vote. Vote. Absolutely. Absolutely. Did I tell you that or did you? I don't know how I knew that. That was it. No, absolutely. That was absolutely no problem. I knew that one easier. Vote. Uh, because for me, there is no separation between the, dis- the, 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 the intention to see clear, to keep my heart open, which means to really not reject any view, to study them, and then do something about it. I've, I am so taken by the Metta Sutta, by that very first line, because the whole Sutta normally when we start to quote it, we say, may all beings be happy, whatever their living nature, whether large or small, medium, coarse or fine, omitting none, may all beings be happy. But actually it begins several paragraphs before that with the words, this is what should be done for those who are skilled in virtue and who know the path of peace. This is what should be done. There is something to be done. We're supposed to do something in the world. This is not a, um, an internal cycle of just dwelling in peace, but doing something, make the world somehow different. It's never seemed to me uh, a question of engaged Buddhism. I didn't know how you could do it unengaged, that it seemed to me so clear that if what the Buddha taught is when you saw clearly, your heart would open to the suffering of the world and you would behave compassionately. So it wouldn't be just that you would see clearly and understand that life is suffering so you wouldn't be blown away by it anymore and you could just somehow dwell in a balanced way until your life was over but that you would be moved. The Metta Sutta said you would be moved just as a mother would give her life to protect her one and only child. And I take that as a metaphor. I don't think it's about mothers. 
I think it's about mothers and fathers. I don't think it's about biological mothers and fathers. I think it's about people. I think it says just as a mother would give her life because that was very much the ethos of uh, the kind of society in, in India at that time, and still now where mothers are very much venerate, venerated and, and sensed to be the, really the lifeline. And maybe it's a recognition of the DNA kinds of ways in which uh, mothers in all kinds of animal species know how to take care of their young. But so maybe it's, but I, I really want to make this uh, an equal opportunity thing that uh, it's built into the species of women, maybe. But I don't think it's a women's thing. Um, I think it's a people thing. You know what I've started? I've started a file of looking at the newspaper every day um, and seeing if by looking at the picture on the front page uh, I can discern what the story is about before I read. Because the picture is increasingly on the front page, or I don't know whether it's increasingly or whether it's just because I've started to look at it, are pictures of grief and consolation. That uh, I don't know if you can see, this was Monday's paper. And uh, this was Monday's paper. Can you see that? So even from a distance, you can see this is a father. So anyway, you can see that it's a man consoling a grown woman. So do you know what story this is? So this is the Moscow thing. This is a daughter who's been freed from that um, theater, and her father. And you look at the you look at both of their faces are so showing grief. We know grief. Do you know, I was thinking about um, the way in which um, there's a, there are children's books by Richard Scarry. Do you know that Richard Scarry is a children's illustrator? Who knows him? Okay, so you know it. I, I know them well because one of my sons was born hearing impaired, and to teach him speech, I used the best word book ever, which I think is the best book in the whole world. I could read it over and over and over again and not get tired of it. There's little animals dressed as people, those who, of you who don't know, in the cutest way, who go about the business of life like people. So they brush their teeth and they make their bed and they, you know, they cook at stoves and drive cars and deliver mail. And so you can teach three-year-olds and four-year-olds the whole vocabulary of life by looking at them, and the pictures are so engaging that I could look at them the hours every day that it required. And I remember one page of pictures of faces with expressions, so that you could, so that the child would then be able to say, from looking at the pig's face, I think actually it was pigs, and know and know to say crying, laughing worrying, um, happy, sad. How do you do worrying? You know how to do worrying? You make wrinkles over here and on the... And crying, you make big tears popping out. How do you make sad? Upside down mouth. Yeah. So, but, and, and four-year-olds can tell. Sad, happy, crying laughing. So we, we, we know how to read other people's mood. But you can look at this picture and know something bad happened and you feel bad. Just a, a few weeks ago, maybe when I was here last, the picture I cut out was the one of the five women in the Siberian town. I, I brought it, didn't I? With the glacier that had just fallen down. And you could see them all sitting on a bench in five different pictures of grief, you know, how you hold your body. You know, when we, when we are not stricken, we stay up. Otherwise, it's like it hits us in the body. So this is, um, this is yesterday's paper. This is uh, the gesture of consolation. There are 
three or four students, young people sitting down, and someone is putting their arm on the top of one of them and touching them. This is the University of Arizona where somebody shot three teachers yesterday, just all of a sudden. And uh, there's a whole now uh, new profession of grief counselors who come in and talk to people while it happened and try to make it all right. But how can you make that all right? It's not all right to go to work in the morning and get shot by somebody. It's not all right. I mean, sometimes you get run over and sometimes there are car, you know, car accidents or glaciers fall down. But do you know there are 200 million guns out in this country? 200 million. It's an amazing number. That's almost as many people as there are in this country. Those are the ones we know about. I keep thinking, I'm keeping this file not because I, I want to have a morbid file of <laughs> sadness, but I keep thinking, do you remember there was uh, a lot of people said that the picture that turned around the Vietnam War, do you remember the picture that turned around the Vietnam War? Of the naked girl running down the street. Yeah. So a lot of people said that was, see, when you say that, my hair all stands on end. We all remember that picture, right? Remember the picture of uh, John Kennedy's funeral? Yeah. What else do you remember? I remember Jackie with her black veil, and I remember the picture of her scrambling behind on the top of the car to grab her husband's remains of his head that had been blown off. Mm -hmm. And I remember the shot in Vietnam to that man in the black part of his veil coming out of the I keep waiting to say, to think that at some point there was go there's going to be the necessary and sufficient picture of grief that enough people will see, that enough people simultaneously will say no. It's a very interesting dilemma that came up for me on this trip. Here was a dilemma. I don't know, maybe if I tell it to you, it will undilemma itself. At some point, I got an email from Caroline Cornfield. Um, I may have sent it to some of you if you were on my email list. I got a letter from Caroline Cornfield, and it said, um, uh, Caroline is uh, the 18-year-old daughter of Jack and Leanna Cornfield. <clears throat> As one of those, please cut and paste this petition letters. And a complete truth requires me to tell you that if I go in my email every day and there's, you know, please don't ignore this petition. I think, oh, you know, I have to catch a bus and a train and I have six other things that I have to answer. And here's a, yet another email that I often feel is going into the void. But here's Caroline, who is just 18 years old, saying, please don't ignore this email. And it's another email that says, let's not go to war. Let's figure out a way to talk about this. This petition is going to the UN. Please cut and paste. And if you are the 500th signer, then send it to this and this email address in Washington. So I scroll down the whole thing, and I'm number 456 or something on it. And I see that the people before me, the three signatures before me, are Leanna Cornfield, Jack Cornfield, um, uh, Caroline Cornfield, Jack Cornfield, Leanna Cornfield, Stan Graf, and two other people that I know. And then before that, there's nobody that I know. And I scroll down the whole thing, and just looking all these where these people are, it, it started in Grenoble in France. And then it went here and there, and it's over from Grenoble up to Sweden, to London, back to Switzerland, back to France, down to Italy. It went to South Africa. It went to Australia. It went to Hawaii. It went up to Alaska. 
it went to Mexico, and I was having the visualization that if we could see the, the, a little line going around the world from where it started, from here to there to there to there to there to there to there to there, to there that literally was going around and around the world. And kept, by the time it came up to 456 people, by the time it got up to me. And I had a feeling that it tied everybody together in a certain way, that if we were all holding on to the same string, we could all say, let's all stand up and say, stop. The line in the Dhammapada says, hatred is never ended by hatred. Only by love alone is hatred ended. This is the eternal law. There is no getting even. You know, the even gets, you know, even goes on forever. And a lot of people get killed. So I cut and I paste it. And then I don't like to send, I, I do have a thing on my email that says send all. But I don't like to do that. Because that means that everybody they send it to gets everybody else's email address. And so I don't know how to do send all blind copies. So I have to go through my whole address book one by one. So I wrote a note that I cut, I pasted, I put a note and I said, uh, I'm doing this because Caroline Cornfield is 18 years old and I want her to know that every single action happen, makes a difference. And that no matter that we might you know, despair, what can one person do? One person can do something. And the whole world is made up of six billion one persons, so they could do something. So I want Caroline to see that. And also, uh, it was also true for me that I went through my whole address book, one, you know, one after another, this blind copy, this blind copy. And, and so I saw it was in my address book. And by the time I finished, I felt very good because I reminded myself of all the people in my address book. So that was actually very good. So I felt, you know, it, was, it took me a long time, like a few hours to do it. I was sitting in some hotel room somewhere. So then I felt really good and I send it out. Next time I look at my email, it's back. And it says, these following people don't exist anymore. So now, and it tells me which 10 people don't exist, I have to go through my letter and find out, pick out those 10 people, otherwise it won't get out. So I throw it again, and I get them all out. And I send, they all go out. Next day, I get a flood of emails back from everybody, from many people I sent it to. And you know how they say sometimes in the White House the mail is running 10 to 1 in favor of something? Well, mine were running 10 to 1. And the 10 was saying, thanks so much for sending the email. Really kept my spirits up. You know, there are other people out there who, as I do, want to have a different response to the violence in the world. And the ones, which were more than one person, but 10 to 1 running that way, said, you know, I looked it up, and I looked up that, uh, pl that web page in Washington where you're supposed to send it if you're the 500th person. And in fact, I, I checked it out, and it's not a viable web page, and someone else said, or heard back from that address that says it's getting deluged with, with um, um, petitions, but they're, they're not a real organization. Please don't deluge them. So I thought to myself, hmm. I'm not sure, you know, that even if the whole petition went out in cyberspace and it, there's no such a viable place and it actually didn't get to the UN, it got to the people on my email list. You know, if it didn't cause harm, you know, it might not have gone to anybody, it might have completely preached to the choir, but... Uh, if there's a big enough choir, we'll sing loud enough if we encourage each other, you know? So I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I think that a lot when I go and I teach groups about violence, hatred never ends with hatred. I think, well, I am teaching to the choir. I don't have to really convert anyone. But sometimes I think the choir has to sing a little bit to themselves to know that they're still alive. And that... Uh, and that there's more than one of us.
was one of the important pieces of spiritual information that I got over the years. I talked to a woman some years ago who I was introduced to through a friend who had been for a long time um, uh, as a leader and an administrator in a Quaker um, peace fellowship that had done all kinds of work in Central America, mostly for causes that didn't thrive. I asked her, how come you don't get depressed? What do you do when you're really depressed? How come you don't give up? She said, I talk to my friends. That was about the best spiritual answer I had ever about that. You only need one other person to tell you you're not alone, to really inspire you. This might be the story that was most uh, moving to me from this whole trip. By the way, it is. are you as well thinking these are hard times, or am I just the only person who thinks it's hard? <laughs> is this interesting to you at all? Because I think sometimes, uh, but you know, I can't think of anything else to talk about. I cannot tell, I mean, I, it seems to me quite the essence of Dharma to talk about how we're going to keep our hearts open when we are so frightened. I said to any number of radio uh, interviewers who said, what is your spiritual practice? I said, well, the most challenging and difficult practice I do these days is read the newspaper. And they were so excited about that, you know, a real person talking about what's really happening. That's actually all I know how to do. So I was, uh, this is my story. I was riding from Philadelphia to New York on one of these back and forths on the Metro Liner, and I got on with my newspaper, and I read it on a particularly despairing morning. And uh, maybe I was tired, but it was morning, and I shouldn't have been so tired. But I read the op-ed page, and I read all of the people who I always depend on to say something that's uh, uh, interesting and important and sometimes devastating, but that always has like a shade of hope in it, like yet, if people would do this, this, and this, it would be all right. And on that morning, all of my columnists that I most like seemed to be as despairing as I, without any enough redemptive feeling. There's a kind of feeling like when the plane is bouncing a lot, you look at the flight attendants to see if they look all right. And if they look all right, you take a little courage from that. You say, okay, I don't have to worry. Oh, see, they're still standing, they're still talking, they're still pouring coffee, okay? It's okay. If my columnists didn't seem like they had any hope, I got really overwhelmed. And suddenly, how the mind works is uh, like I felt such a wave of sleepiness come over me, I, I, and it was morning. But I, I closed up the paper, and uh, I knew I had to take a nap. It was like whatever energy was in the mind. You know, we talk about those five mind states of uh, uh, pulling and pushing greed and aversion and torpor and restlessness and doubt. It was like an attack of torpor of the nth degree. Do you ever have that sometimes when you're driving where you think I can't stay awake a minute? Just the energy goes out of the mind. When you should pull over if you're driving. So, all right, I'm in the metro line. I fold up, I fold up my paper and I say to the person next to me who I'd noticed. The person next to me was a really cute-looking young woman. She really looked like... Um, young person with a career. She she really cute as anything. She got on, sat down, I sat down. She's all dressed beautifully. She looked like the cover of a fashion magazine. She was reading a fashion magazine. She was coiffed. She was made up. She just had a little suit with beautiful. Everything was beautiful. I looked at her. She had a little attaché case. I loved her little attaché case. <laughs> Whole thing. So I looked at her, I was really enjoying how, you know, really, and she's reading the magazine. So I make a picture of her. Anyway, then I say, I turned to her and I said, look, uh, I don't want to sleep. I need to take a nap right now. 
But I don't want to sleep all the way to New York because I need to be awake and ready to get up. You know, I need to be in New York. So I, I need some time to work before I get there. So I'd like to sleep for 20 minutes. If I sleep past then, would you wake me up, please? So she said, yes, of course. And then she said, are you all right? So I said, yeah, I'm okay. Are you all right? And she said, no, I'm frightened. And immediately I woke up. This was the moment that I learned the most on the whole entire trip. I've had such a big torpor in the mind. person next to me, because this is not unique to me, this is what human beings do. If the person next to you says, I need help, you can feel it in your body just I told you that story. Didn't you get feel it in your body? When I said the person next to me said, no, I'm frightened. Didn't you get, huh, in your body? It wakes us up. That's what we do as human beings. It's not anything we have to cultivate. You don't have to take a course in taking care of people or a course in compassionate response. The person next to you says, I'm frightened. You wake up. Sleeping is completely gone. I say to her, Can, you, you want to talk about it? You all right? She said, well, I'm frightened. She said, I've been reading the newspaper over your shoulder for one thing. <laughs> And she said, the situation in the world is terrible. And, and we had a, a quite a lively and informed discussion about the world situation. She didn't have the answer to what anybody should do, and I didn't have the answer about what anybody should do. Because, you know, it's going to take wiser minds than me to figure out the whole thing, for sure, or her. It's very complex. I'm pretty sure we should not be going to war with Iraq, and I'm signing every petition and sending money to everybody who says that, that I can find to do that. But I don't know how we're going to really work things out. But I do know some of the issues to talk about, and so did she. And it was so um, consoling. We were not talking about sweet things. We were talking about the state of the world. But it was consoling to talk to somebody else who was willing and informed and ready to talk about it. And the whole while I'm talking about it, I'm also having an under-level conversation with myself about having just found myself uh, trapped in an ageism, uh, which I had looked at her and I had thought so cute. I mean, she really was beautiful. And as young and all put together, and I had, in a moment, looked at her with her attaché case and her young woman on the rise and a good job look about her, that I had decided that she was just interested in herself and her career and was not thinking about the world, and that only I, in my mature uh, <laughs> state, was informing myself about the world and that only I was suffering the pain of the world and that she was reading the fashion magazine and she wouldn't know. And I caught myself in a reverse ageism, which I felt badly about because I'm, you know, I'm very, I'm sensitive about ageism. I don't like when I get on a bus and three people stand up and want <laughs> offer me their, their, their seats. You know, my thought, it's all right, I can still stand, you know, it's okay. But, but, and here I am caught in the back side of that, you know, that's a, that was really, so I, I have this going in my mind about, uh-oh, look, I, I caught myself in a view, trapped in a view right away. So I'm watching that, but in the meantime, I'm having a conversation with her. Uh, it's, it's actually, I love it when I catch myself like that. It just takes me down a little bit, humbly. Um, <laughs> Which isn't bad, because I won't do it again, that same mistake. Um, I mean, I have to think this practice is doing something for me, and I think actually it is. It is, it is. Um, so then we finished this whole discussion, and she said, now I feel badly, because you haven't had your nap. I said, no, no, it's all right. I'm wide awake now, it's fine. And we both sit back, and she said, you know what? 
I'm also frightened about what I have to do in New York. Then we had a whole other discussion about her job and the fact that she was, <clears throat> she's the marketing director for a whole company that does something rather that I didn't quite understand the mechanics of, but it didn't matter that I understood the, what her company exactly did. I asked her and she explained it to me. They marketed something that did something for <laughs> retailers that projected what was selling and what wasn't selling. But anyway, the details of it weren't important for me to get because I didn't have to give her marketing advice. I don't know anything about marketing advice. What I know is that people who are in trouble like to talk to somebody about it and have them listen and not figure it out for them, but just listen so they can talk out loud. She said, there are going to be 60 people. I'm going tonight. I have to sleep over there because it's an early morning breakfast meeting and we have speakers and I'm in charge of getting everything happening and it's a lot of stuff to worry about and so I'm worried about doing a good job. So by that time we talk about, uh, that moves us, since she is now brought in into the level of the personal, which led me to think, and this is one of the other things that I learned, that we connect to each other, each of us, on the level of what are we all worried about, and then we connect on the level of what are we individually worried about. And we're all worried about those two levels, I think. I think it's our ability to worry about ourselves, to be concerned, that allows us to connect in some way we intuit to other people um, have the same dynamics as us. We are all wanting for our own lives to go well and we're all wanting for life to go well. So we can connect on those two levels. So now she's talking about her personal life. And then the next thing we talk about is the fact that she's just recently been married and now she takes out her wallet, shows me a picture of the husband and we talk about that her grandfather, her grandparents on this side were Greek and on this side were Romanian and she wishes she'd known the Greek grandfather but she never was interested in learning to speak Greek with him and she should have and the whole husband and by this time I'm taking out the pictures of my family and showing my grandchildren and I, I ended up feeling so lifted up from that trip because I thought maybe this is the paradigm for the world if the world will say, hey, we're worried the world is on fire, maybe we could all then sit down and say, you know what else? I'm worried about my life. Tell me about your life. Okay, now you tell me about your life. Now show me your baby pictures and your family pictures. And I was aware of, I'm, I'm showing her the pictures of my children and my grandchildren and thinking about that I want there to be clean air and clean water when my grandchildren have grandchildren. And she's telling me I'm worried about having children because I want them to be in a world. So we're kind of looking at the world from the point of someone who's starting in with that enterprise and someone who's finishing with that enterprise. And I thought, if we could be paradigms for the whole world, saying, stop, let's talk to each other. What's the truth? We are all frightened. Even the people in the newsreels that you see, actually have stopped watching television. But I see when I'm in airports, because they play CNN in all the airports, people waving placards and people looking like they're whipping themselves up to make a war. They're frightened too. Everybody is frightened. That, that sometimes the response to being frightened is, you know, I'll beat you up and then I won't be able, I won't have to be frightened anymore because I'll be in charge. But that's not going to work. To say, show me the pictures of your grandchildren. Sit down, take out what's in your wallet. Show it to me. That trip on the metro liner was probably the point in which I learned the most. The whole entire trip. I had one other thing that I was going to teach you about. I brought it with me. If I could find it, where is it? No? It's not here, so it's not going to happen. Not anyway to, oh yeah, it is here. I see we have a few minutes. Only a few. Should I try this?
I will. Because I wanted to make, I wanted to tell you how much, since I was traveling every day, and since the message that I wanted to tell people was that you really do not have to uh, join a Buddhist community or become a Buddhist or leave your own either religious community or any kind of a community. To be awake as a person is what really is what's necessary. In Naropa, where I taught last weekend, they have a big quote from the Dalai Lama up on one of the bulletin boards that said, uh, the most important thing for me to teach is not Buddhism. It's about teaching decent human values, just for human beings. That's what really it's about. So I was thinking to myself to make the bridge in between how to really look because that's what mindfulness is about, just really looking and making the move from what are we going to see? Like, uh, there's a line from Psalms that says, look with your eyes. Okay, but if you look, what will you see? So I've been going from city to city and teaching in every city with the front page of their newspaper every day, whatever their city is. And so uh, this, of course, isn't such a good one to do because it's the New York Times, so that it doesn't do it as much. Uh, but when I was in Boulder, I used um, the Boulder Camera, which is actually an, a nice name for a newspaper. It's, it's actually got written articles, not just photos, but it's called the Camera. But I thought about, how about that for a name of, you look at the life and you take pictures of it. Because in each city, the world is out here, but the world starts from that city. So that in the front page in the Boulder camera is what happened when some distressing thing happened in Boulder the day before. The Boulder football team, the University of Colorado, won their homecoming game the other day. That's in the middle of the front page. And then around it is the world news. It's really so important to see in every city the world starts from there. When we do metta here, when I do metta here for the whole world, I imagine myself sitting in the North Bay area. You know, when I'm in Boston, I'm thinking of the Mississippi River to my left. Uh, when I'm in different places, you, that we each do that. We do it not only from our own city, but out of our own life, really. We want so much for that, like that lovely young woman on the metro line who wanted her presentation to go well the next day, and world peace. That we all want, you know, for you know, I, for whatever it is in our life to work out, and world peace. So I was teaching that about just look at the paper and see that what's the local issue will be in the middle, and then the world will be around it. And keep in mind that our entire, that's the same with us, our local issue. And this is the one that I brought back from um, uh, Washington. This is the Washington Post. You see all the scribbles that I made around it, because this is my lesson plan for that morning. I wanted to say to people that uh, using again that translation of mindfulness in the French, they call mindfulness vision profonde. How are you going to look at a picture and see it profoundly, or a story, see it profoundly, not just what happened? So I was, in each city, I would do, take their morning paper and then see if I could uh, make a story out of that. Just look at this picture, read the story, and tell me what you can learn. So. I'll see if I can do this in three minutes. This is the Washington Post. And this is a picture of, um, it's called Speed and Skill Saves Boy. I think he's still living, one of those 13 people that got shot. The young boy who, um, whose identity, I'm happy to say, is not being revealed so his family can quietly be doing what they're doing but who was shot. And it's a story uh, of, the fur, uh, of how they operated on him. And it's an amazing piece of uh, um, exciting stuff to read. So quite apart from the sniper story, 
you read the story and you look at it and you say, well, what else do I know now? Well, first of all, I know that uh, uh, what they've been saying about newspapers over the years is that uh, news has become like a feature item. It used to be that there was a features page where they told stories and the news was just in the front. So straight news, a boy got shot and they operate on him and he's still alive. But now it's in the middle of the front page and it goes into the inside of the paper on a whole two sides of a page. And it's blow by blow from, and then this happened, this happened, this happened. I have never seen ER on television, but a lot of people say it's very exciting. Do you ever see those kind of shows? Is it good? Those kind of medical shows? I, but I, I read it and I thought, I guess this is why people watch ER, because it's like a, so exciting, you even know the end of it, but it's exciting to read that uh, wh- what am- amazing heroic measures each of the medical personnel that helped this boy from the beginning. And it's making the point, among other things, that the first hour is so crucial to stabilize somebody's body before their vital organs start to die. Like the nurse in the hospital, in the school, the school nurse in the school outside of which he was shot, knew not to call the paramedics, put him in her car, and zoom to the local hospital, because by the time you call the paramedics, it's six minutes till they come. Put this poor bleeding boy in her car, ran to the local hospital, and then it has all the descriptions of what the emergency room doctor there, what the next one did, how they realized that they needed to get him to the major hospital in Washington where they would have the highest trained pediatric surgeons, and that if they went in an ambulance, it would take too long on the roads. So they had to get the helicopter and the paramedics on the helicopter. And they show you each of the stages of the, of the passing this boy along. And the first person who looked at him, well, I'll save that till the end, because that is, gets me. So when you read the article, first of all, in the same time you're reading, you have to read with both eyes, I keep telling myself, reading about the horribleness of this, the arbitrariness of this. Life is so difficult, and here's this boy going to school in the best of health on a normal day, and all of a sudden. So that's the horribleness. On the other hand, to really, the other things to see in this article, like the incredible skill of the people who took care of him, the amazing medical know-how that we know how to do now. And along the way, every amazing medical innovent, in, innovation. Ten years ago, I don't know if they could have done this. Twenty years ago, they probably couldn't have done this. I think to myself, at that point, human beings are so ingenious. They can figure out how to go to the moon. They can figure out how to do all these graphs and splints and Surely they can figure out how to get along with each other. There ought to be a way that they can figure out not to kill each other and actually take care of themselves. We're so smart. So I'm trying to see this with both eyes. And they're trying so hard, and everybody wanted so much. And I think to myself, the other eye, because you can see with that eye of horrible, of how could a person want just like that to kill somebody? So I have to have only the other tape going, which is most people don't want to do that. Most people are appalled by that. People say, how come everybody is glued to the television? Does it actually mean that we all have the same kind of... I don't think so. I think it means, if anything, the other, that we're horrified by that. We can't wrap the mind around that. Looked at all kinds of other things in this article. I looked at the fact that they showed photos of all the doctors that took care of this boy on the way. This over here is the last doctor who did the pediatric, the the the, the, the tremendously intense internal surgery. But I looked at all the doctors, and they are uh, a diverse group of people. They are different colors, different sexes and different ethnicities that you can tell from their names. And I thought to myself, 
okay, I'd like to have the eye that's also seeing that that wouldn't have been true 50 years ago. Wouldn't have been having women there. Would not have been having people of color there. Would not have been having people with names with this or that or the other ethnicity in there. Just wouldn't have been. My husband was in medical school 50 years ago, and I know what was there and what's there now. Half of the people in medical school are women now. A little more than half, actually, at the last count, 51%. So I read that in it. I guess the line that I read them that I wanted to say for the last was uh, the first doctor who said he met the uh, wheelchair. The, the woman drove to the hospital, rushed in, they put the child in the wheelchair, bring him into the emergency room. He's all slumped over and bleeding. Can you imagine a 13-year-old? I mean, I, um, I mean, I think of my, my, well, here's this person who said, here's this child slumped over and breathing, bleeding and pale as anything. And he said, I looked at him and he looked like my child. You know? And imagine, you know, I am waiting. It makes me cry to tell you that. That's why I left it till the end. I keep praying that at some moment, the significant photo, I don't know how, you know, I'll cut out photos, but the world will have to see one significant image of too many, just as they saw the child running down the road in Vietnam, to be able to say, stop. I told people in all of these cities where I only showed up with the newspaper, that I don't carry stuff with me. On this trip, I showed up with the newspaper. I showed up with the Paramita chart, because it was the Paramita book. I'll bring the chart next time and give you all a chart when you, if you haven't. And the poem by Neruda that I read all the time. And I said, this is all I travel with, the chart, the newspaper, and the Neruda poem. I'm going to read it to you right now. Now we will all count to twelve, and all keep still. For once, in the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. But stop for a second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales, and the men gathering salt would not look at it. Man gathering salt would not look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fires, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk about with their brothers in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it's about. I want no truck with death. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving, and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us as when everything seems dead and later proves to be alive. Now I'll count to twelve and you keep quiet. And I will go. Let's wish for the world that the image, that the image of the pain that the world is in will somehow coalesce together. Or the pain that the world is in will somehow coalesce together into one image that everyone suddenly, simultaneously will see and say, let's not do this anymore. We are so smart. Let's figure out another way. Let's take care of each other. Put on clean clothes and walk about with our brothers and sisters in the shade, doing nothing.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.